This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. As uh, you know, we are expecting an announcement this afternoon at 1.15 from BC's Housing Minister how the government is going to help both renters and landlords out as we deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. So we thought we would put that question to you now. How would you like to see the government handle rent and mortgage payments during the pandemic? Subsidize payments or delay the payments that you can vote on Twitter, at CKNW. I will retweet it as well, so you can vote on uh, my uh, Twitter uh, feed as well, at Jill Reports. If you want to call the buzz line and leave your comments there, by all means, uh, you can do that at 604-331-BUZZ. That's 604-331-2899. Leave your vote there. Again, we're asking you, how would you like to see government handle rent and mortgage payments during the COVID-19 pandemic? Would you like to see them subsidize payments or delay payments? Or if you have another idea, you can tweet that at me as well or leave that on the Buzzline recording if you would like to do that. And we can share some of your comments on that a bit later on in the program. So we're going to talk about frontline workers. And I don't know about you, but I have certainly been stopping at 7 o'clock every evening and making some noise. And it seems like that noise is getting a lot louder, some support from people in a lot of neighbourhoods around Metro Vancouver. Of course, that doesn't actually keep them safe, but hopefully it provides some comfort to show that, yes, we are behind you and we appreciate everything you are doing. Well, a group of registered nurses has now written an open letter to the Prime Minister as well as to BC Premier John Horgan calling on improvements to the response to COVID-19. And again, the registered nurses from several different hospitals have all signed this letter. One is Will Offley, a registered nurse at Vancouver General Hospital. And Will joins me on the line now to talk a little bit more about this. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, You're welcome. Uh, First, thank you as well for being a frontline worker and for doing this during this incredibly difficult and unprecedented time. Uh, How are things right now working in the healthcare system? Um. I can't say. I work part-time, and I uh, was last in to work uh, midweek last week. So I do not know until I go back to work tomorrow night how that situation has changed, and I expect it's going to be very fluid uh, and something that exists uh, at one point in time is not necessarily going to be the case a a week down the road. When I was working there uh, last week, it was extremely quiet, but I think that's uh, entirely attributable to um, the hospital basically hunkering down, clearing the decks, and getting ready for uh, for what is going to be a uh, rapid increase in the number of cases coming in the door. Are you hearing at all from other nurses or other healthcare workers about mm-hmm. what things are like or what you'll be returning to when you go back tomorrow? Um, there's uh, just going by social media. There's there's clearly an increase in cases, but I, I would be hesitant to generalize on how much and how many. Uh, um, I, I think I'll find out uh, tomorrow night in, in terms of Vancouver General. All right. The letter itself uh, that, again, was written to the Prime Minister and to the Premier uh, starts off by saying, as frontline BC nurses, we want to join our voices with Royal Columbian doctors, uh, expressing our alarm at the insufficient and slow response of the federal and provincial governments to the current spread of uh, uh, the coronavirus. Uh, what specifically uh, are you talking about, or do you think the nurses are talking about there, that, that makes up the insufficient and slow response? 
Well, there are a number of areas. I mean, there have been uh, clearly over the last week has been significant progress in terms of uh, people getting the message around the necessary. Uh, I don't like the, um, the necessity for physically distancing themselves. I, I don't like the phrase social distancing because I think socially we need to come together. But of keeping a physical distance, staying at home, doing all the things that uh, that has uh, been uh, sort of uh, spread around uh, pr- pretty clearly over the last week. Um, there, there's been all sorts of measures announced uh, in terms of states of emergency and specific uh, programs uh, coming out of that provincially and federally. So it's not as if nothing has been happening. But the problem uh, the letter hopes to address, uh, along with the doctor's letter, is the, that there still seem to be areas where there are enormous gaps uh, that are just absolutely inconsistent with either uh, physical distancing, social distancing, or just basic infection control. Um, one of them is uh, the uh, refusal to, or more likely the inability to, do mass testing. Because all of the things we see um, basically are uh, indeterminate figures. I mean, because until we get to a, a point where it's possible to do mass testing, and especially mass testing of clusters or outbreaks, uh, there's, there's no way of having a precise idea how rapidly it's spreading, where it's spreading, and what, sort of what the rate of increase is. So I don't know whether that's a lack of, uh, of uh, viral swabs. I don't know if that's a lack of lab testing capacity. I don't know specifically what's being done to, uh, to ad- address those uh, two big gaps. But that's, that's one very important uh, point that ne- certainly needs to be clarified and, and to be worked on. At this point, I would imagine, because we've seen in the health authorities, uh, at least Vancouver Coastal Health uh, has stopped all visitors, uh, unless it's an exceptional case of, say, coming into, say, if somebody's at end of life. Uh, by stopping all visitors, then, are, are there the supplies then that I would imagine the frontline healthcare workers would treat everybody as if they have it? Are there the supplies to then protect healthcare workers? Uh, I right now, or as of the last time I worked, I have seen no problems in terms of shortages. Um, I do not know what the overall situation is. So, um, certainly looking at the situation in the states, um, if this thing ramps up uh, as much as it certainly seems still to have the the possibility of doing, then that is going to be a very real concern. And uh, that's that's um, for us on the front line. That's the one of the biggest concerns: is are there going to be enough uh, masks? Are there going to be enough N95s? Are there going to be enough uh, isolation gowns? Are there going to be enough ventilators? Uh, you know, we we don't really know what sort of reserves there are, and uh, and those are going to be critical to being able to to both deal with the situation and to deal with it safely. Uh, the letter goes on to say that it calls for a mandatory shutdown of every workplace except those deemed essential. Uh, we have seen that in other provinces. It varies from province to province, so what businesses are on that list and what aren't. Uh, would you like to see then businesses, uh, again, us to follow the lead of the provinces that have done that? Absolutely, and that, um, that's one of the areas that should be mandatory. I mean, like, uh, you look at the the way the uh, economy of British Columbia is structured, there there are areas that are clearly at extremely high risk for being uh, a sort of vectors where the, the disease can be transmitted, not just to their community, but all over the place, and particularly construction camps, like whether it's uh, Kitimat, whether it's uh, Coastal Gas Link, whether it's Trans Mountain, whether it's uh, the tech, uh, tech coal mines up in the... Uh, up in the uh, interior, 
Um, these have like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of mostly transient workers who will come in, work for 10 days, 14 days, and then fly back to their communities, which may be in BC or maybe elsewhere in Canada. And it's just a situation that's right. I mean, it's sort of like a, a cruise ship, but with people rotating in and out on a, on a biweekly basis. And uh, I, I think it's absolutely essential to have a consistent uh, policy of trying to contain this pandemic. But these uh, work sites be shut down, except for the absolutely essential maintenance personnel, because we already have a situation where there's 16, as of last week, anyway, we were 16 workers at the at Site C who were uh, in isolation for COVID-like uh, symptoms. I don't know what the test results have shown. And the, the risk is just enormous there. And, and you're also talking about, and again, that's I suppose good news that as far as supply of medical supplies right now, you're not seeing any any shortage. Uh, but this whole issue of even then, if we went to a stage of shutting down uh, non-essential businesses and whatever that list might look like in BC, uh, telling people to, to physically distance and making it possible for people to physically distance uh, can be two very different things. Well, absolutely, and certainly, uh, I mean. <laughs> We can raise the uh, we can raise the uh, problem. I mean, but we definitely uh, getting all the answers is going to be something that is going to have to involve a whole bunch of people putting their heads together. But um, part of it is like there are poor people in the society. There are people that do not have financial means. There are people that are just uh, financially going to be forced to go to work. Uh, if they still have work. And and until such time as they can be guaranteed provision of food, provision of medications, provision of all the uh, minimal necessities of life, people are going to be driven to continue going out of the home and going to work and the entire thing. So, like, it's it's not just enough that we shut down uh, workplaces, although uh, essential as that may be, uh, but that that is accompanied by putting in place Whatever the expense, the social supports that make that make that policy something that's possible and something can be that can be implemented. Uh, have you had any response to the letter at this point? Uh, there, there's been no formal response from either the premier or the prime minister, but I imagine they have their hands full right now. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, Will, I know it's a busy time for you, and uh, I hope things are okay when you return to work tomorrow. We'll keep covering this uh, and see what happens next. Thank you so much for your time. Great. Thank you very much. We've been talking a lot about the good that is coming out. People helping out their neighbors, socially distancing, physically keeping two meters away from people while still offering to get groceries to help out in any way they can. It's been really nice to see the level of help that has really been inspired by people as we all try to get through this COVID-19 pandemic together. Unfortunately, there are also people, and we've seen them as well, trying to resell sanitary equipment, sanitizing gel, masks, what have you. Thankfully, that seems to be there is uh, some crackdown on that. But unfortunately, it does bring out the worst in people in some cases. And fraudsters are certainly trying to take advantage of all of the growing fear and anxiety caused by COVID-19. Well, let's bring in Kelly Keene. She is a Canadian consumer advocate with FP Canada, also a personal finance educator. And she's here to talk a little bit about what we're seeing as far as scams 
and uh, fraudulent sites that are popping up. Kelly, thank you so much for taking some time with us. Oh, Jill, such a pleasure to be with you. I I wish it were a better subject, but such an important one right now for all Canadians to really be aware of. So do I. I mean, I've noticed an increase in the calls, uh, the the fake CRA calls, the fake calls that say uh, an investigation has been launched. I don't know if that's anything to do with COVID-19, but I'm getting way more of those than I was before. Uh, What are you hearing about as far as frauds and scams uh, that are popping up because of this? Yeah, 100%. And ironically, Jill, we're actually in Fraud Prevention Month because this does tend to be typically just, you know, putting COVID-19 aside. Typically, this is a month when people are kind of recovered from Christmas and they're spending more money and the fraudsters come back out. So we're seeing all the usual fraud that we see. I, too, like you, have got the, the it wasn't CRA, it was like, you know, you, you are in trouble with the government and, and leaving these angry voicemails. I've already had people coming to the door um, asking for donations. Are they legit or not? I, I, I don't know. Um, so you not only have the regular fraud that everyone is uh, needing to be diligent, uh, you know, diligent and, and spotting, but now we've got the new COVID-19 scams that are starting and are going to be increasing. So let me break a little bit of some of what's happening down. Um, Canada's cyber spies are working really hard, too, I have to say. They're doing such a great job in shutting down fake sites. So the RCMP says that they are already shutting down fake sites of fraudsters uh, posing as Public Health Agency of Canada, CRA, Canadian Border Services, as you can imagine, right? So many people wanting to get their family back into the country. Um, Saying horrible things, Jill, like, you know, calling you or or emailing or texting saying, you've been tested positive for COVID-19, but we need your credit card to actually... Um, you know, uh, get the prescription for you that's going to cure it. I mean, number one, that's a total hoax. Number two, a horrible one at that. Um, and then as we're all, or most of us, are at home or self-isolating or what have you, we're being encouraged to stay at home, but communicate with our loved ones via social media and keep in touch that way, especially with the elders in our life. But how do you know if something's legit? There was one that the um, Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre was, was flagging. It was an ultraviolet disinfection lamp that was saying it could kill the virus. You know, just ridiculous things that fraudsters are trying to do. So um, such an important time to be on the lookout, but also to really help the elders in your life. My mom's 81. She's new to Facebook. She's using it more and more now that she's home and isolated. But I worry sometimes that she doesn't really get that a friend request might not really be a friend, even if it looks like someone her age, um, or how to really decipher what is real and what is fake. Absolutely. And it certainly doesn't help that we have uh, the President of the United States uh, talking about drugs in press conferences and touting that maybe they work. And then, thankfully, health officials coming forward and saying, no, uh, that's not something. There is no cure. There is no treatment at this time. Uh, But it it can lend to that, I would imagine, too. People would like to believe that there's a lamp that works or that there's something that works. So what should they actually be looking for then? Because a lot of these calls and these websites and these requests look legitimate. Mm-hmm. And you're so right. As soon as he said that, you know fraudsters from all over the world were, were getting their ads ready to pop up on our social media. So what you want to be looking out for is, and, and, and I don't think it's happening yet, but it'll be happening any time now, I'm sure, where fraudsters will be emailing you, texting you, um, calling you, trying to reach out on social media saying, hey, they are either with the government or have a way for you to get your government benefits now 
maybe you just have to give some information or, or maybe pay a small fee with your credit card. Um, there's going to be all types of variations of those things. Um, I get an email a lot, and I bet this will increase as well, usually on Fridays, saying my bank account's been suspended, and if I don't take action immediately, uh, you know, it's going to be shut down. Well, you can imagine people are in, in, in incredibly stressful, anxiety-ridden situations as it is right now. My goodness, if you think your bank account is going to be shut down, you might react. So the first thing is you've got to slow down. I know people have got kids at home, parents at home, pets at home. Um, slow down before responding to anything. Fraudsters want you to click on links. They want you to open up attachments. What's going to happen if you do that? It installs malicious software into your computer so they can get more information, or they're going to try to dupe you into donating money to false causes, into giving credit card information. And, and Jill, they're always clever. They're always trying to change it up. Um, You know, they may be like, they may even have the last four digits of your credit card information. You know, maybe mm-hmm. they stole it from somewhere or what have you, and, and they call you up and say, we've got the last four digits, and we just want to confirm it's you. Could you give us the rest and the expiry? You see how they can get very clever with just a little bit of information, and the best of us can get duped. So um, it's just slowing down, really being on the alert for these red flags, sharing them with friends and family, And then here's something I worry about is for older Canadians, um, they're more susceptible to to being, you know, um, caught up by fraudster. Not that we all aren't, but a little bit more maybe because they're home more, they answer their phone. Please, if you've got parents, if you've got older parents or seniors in your life, get a trusted advocate that they can reach out to if they've been duped, like a banker or a certified financial planner. Because I know in my own family, if my mom got had and she clicked one of those links or something of that sort, she might feel embarrassed to tell her kids. She might worry that her memory slipping or her cognitive capacity and might not want to share. So set them up with someone that they could call, that they could get help right away, um, instead of them just remaining silent and the fraudsters actually dig deeper. Absolutely. I would imagine that this is different too, because we're dealing with a scenario that because of social distancing, because we're being told to stay at home and, and we're seeing things go online that have never been online before, such as insurance renewals, driver's mm-hmm. license renewals. That's never happened before. And fraudsters are going to try and take advantage of that. Yeah, absolutely. And we might be more lackadaisical with how we share our information. We might be more quick to email out a copy of a driver's license or things of that sort. Um, you know, we need a lot of work done with our, our, our you know, banking system that way. That's not uh, something that's going to get solved today. But you've got to be so, so careful when you're sending in any kind of information or doing these renewals or what have you that everything is secure. You're going to the right site. You're not being diverted to a fake one. How do you know? Go to the site yourself. It, when in doubt, pick up the phone and call up the company if it's a, a registry or a renewal or your bank. Don't click on a link from an email. Um, yeah, when in doubt, always, always give a call first and find out what the legitimate website is if you suspect anything. All right. And just before I let you go, you are going to be doing uh, some Facebook Live events. These are, not, uh, these are not scams. These are legitimate events for people to find out the very latest about them uh, from the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre uh, as well. So how can people uh, know, find out about that or take part in those? 
Yeah, thanks, Jill. Um, yeah, we just wanted to provide some free events just to reassure Canadians and give them the latest information. They're going to be happening starting this Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, every single Friday for the next at least four or five weeks, they can hop onto Facebook, um, go to Kelly Keene Biz, B-I-Z. You'll find all the information there. Um, we'd love to hear your questions. This week is going to all be about a little bit about fraud prevention, but mostly about how to survive if you just literally don't have any money. What's the government benefits coming out? How do you financially survive COVID-19? And we're going to take it from there with a bunch of experts each week. All right. Sounds good. Kelly, thank you so much. We'll talk to you again, I'm sure. Thank you, Jill. Take care. Well, as we know, things are very different right now. A lot of businesses are closed. We are not yet, and we might not be, at the state of some other provinces that have gone to essential businesses only, although that list changes depending on where you live. And that means that real estate transactions are still continuing. We've talked about open houses. That has changed. They are doing by appointment only and following COVID-19 rules. But what about real estate deals? And how is that being impacted by this. Let's bring in Kenneth Pazder, a lawyer with the Pazder Law Corporation. And Kenneth is with us on the line now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Uh, what is the, the main issue you see in this when it comes to real estate transactions? Because they are complicated and they often include people being face-to-face. Well, uh, as a matter of fact, yes, uh, they have to include face-to-face because the at the moment, the Land Titles Act of British Columbia requires... Um, people who are executing land titles documents, say a land transfer, a mortgage, to be personally present with their lawyer or notary. So there is no virtual signing at this point in time allowed. So we've been having lots of calls from clients saying, do I have to come in? I don't really want to come in. Is it safe to come in? Um, Can we sign from home? Can we sign the documents? Uh, Can we use DocuSign or or AuthentiSign? That's some electronic forms of signature that realtors are allowed to use with their clients. Uh, We can't do any of those things. So what does that mean for deals? Because a lot of these deals that we're dealing with now, I would imagine, were well in the works and and well underway before these new rules came into place. Yeah, they've, you know, the people buy properties uh, usually a month or two in advance before they see us. In some cases, it's several years in advance if they bought a pre-sale. So they wouldn't have imagined any of these kinds of issues even a couple of months ago. So what we've done is we've we've tried to contact the Law Society and the, the LTSA, which is the Land Title Survey Authority, um, to see if there's some way we can get around this, uh, you have to be here and, and sort of sign our clients up online. They have relied on an old court case from 16 years ago that says, no, you can't do that. Uh, That's, you know, appearing before me means physically appearing before me. So I've written to the the Minister of uh, Forest Lands and Natural Resource Operations, uh, to the Deputy Minister. They they oversee the Land Titles Act and the Land Titles uh, uh, LTSA. And so if anyone can fix this, they can fix it because they can make a legislative amendment to the Land Titles Act to allow virtual signing in this, at least during the pandemic. So what's happening in the meantime? Are you still going and staying two meters away or how is this even possible? 
Well, you see, that's difficult because I, I have to say to clients, you have to come into my office because if you don't, then you're not going to be able to con- conclude your deal. So we, we try to keep them over in the corner and then I'll all kind of sit as far away as I can. Some of them come in wearing gloves. Uh, some of them, you know, I tell them, you know, when you leave, wash your hands. There's a washroom outside. You wash your hands before you leave. Um, beyond that, <clears throat> there's not really much we can do. Now, <clears throat> the land titles people have suggested something called a uh, Form, for, Form 49 affidavit. That doesn't really work unless unless I can personally recognize your signature because you're an old client of mine. It allows you to sign at your house, send the documents back to me, but I have to be able to have someone here who can swear an affidavit saying I recognize your signature. So that's not particularly useful for us. So we're in the meantime, we're just stuck. It's, it's kind of like business as usual, try and keep people back far away, wear some gloves if you can, that sort of thing. There's nothing else we can do. So we're trying to lobby the government to say, look, can you do something like quicker than usual? Mm-hmm. Uh, the state of New York last week, uh, as you know, New York is, uh, is a big hot spot for this uh, COV-19 and uh, they, their governor just came out flat out and issued an executive order saying virtual signups are permitted in New York. Right. Just like that. So if they can so do I mean, it, you would think we could do that here as well. Yeah, well, to see, the thing is normally legislative changes take weeks, if not months, to go through readings and checking and all sorts of studies, but we don't have that kind of time. I only have about a minute left. I got an email from somebody who... Uh, sold a house in Langley, purchased a home in Alberta. She's now worried that lawyers' offices might close or land titles might close. So what would you say to her? I don't think land titles is going to close. Most of them, most of the stuff here, it's virtual. Uh, I mean, we we electronically file documents, so that's not going to happen. Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't think she has anything to worry about, but she's going to run into the same issues. Um, Alberta doesn't have electronic filing, so she's going to have to go in and see somebody probably in Alberta personally to sign the documents. Mm. All right. So in the meantime, then, uh, waiting, I suppose, to see if government moves on this, and uh, you'll have to continue being face-to-face and taking those measures. Yes, and, and if any of your listeners out there, if you're, if you're at home and you have nothing to do, Phone your MLA in the British Columbia government and ask them what are they doing about this because there's thousands of people out there right now who are buying, selling, and mortgaging their houses as we speak. All right. Uh, Kenneth Pazdar, we'll leave it there. We're right out of time. Lawyer with Pazdar Law Corporation, also a special, uh, specializes in real estate law. We are joined now on the line by an addiction specialist with some concerns about today being the last Wednesday of the month and the possibility of a spike in overdoses because of COVID-19. Nirmala Raniga joins me on the line, again, an addiction specialist. Thank you so much for taking some time with us. Good afternoon, Jill, and thanks for having me um, on the show. And, uh, you know, these times are very important and critical to get some message out to our community. What are your concerns then with today in particular and the possibility of overdoses? Well, as we, I mean, as we know that, um, you know, every month we have the Welfare Wednesdays or the checks come out end of the month. And with COVID, COVID-19, we know the borders have been, uh, there's been a lockdown, people are not crossing the border. And, um, you know, there's people who are holding on to probably fentanyl and other drugs and uh, uh, check issue. And we know in Welfare Wednesday, the Thursday, Friday, the risk of overdose increases. 
and with COVID-19, there's, um, it's like a double whammy in a sense that, uh, you know, here we have people who are uh, in downtown east side, even in Surrey and different communities, the marginalized, vulnerable people who are, um, you know, addicted have, um, there's a greater risk uh, on two levels. One, there's no, um, you know, there's, there's no social um, distancing there or isolation or physical isolation. There, it's a community. Um, you know, while addiction really, uh, when we think about treatment and healing, we, we want that connection. We want people to come together to heal when they're addicted because addiction is about isolation. Here we have to practice the opposite where we want people to isolate where were they going to go? Uh, they can't isolate. So we have on one level uh, a greater risk of the spread of the the virus in that community. And on the other hand, we probably will see um, more people overdosing. Be- and because, that's the, the great concern. And also, I mean, with frontline workers are, are stretched to the limits and uh, feeling a lot of stress uh, dealing with this. Um, I talked to a doctor, I think it was last week, about this saying he was concerned as well that the black market was going to take off because of hoarding and because of a shortage of other drugs. Is that something that concerns you as well? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, you know, there are people out there, there are predators out there, I'm sorry to say, that they wait for this kind of moments and they take advantage of the marginalized, the vulnerable people on the street. And it's very sad for people like us who work in this field that, you know, there is help for uh, those who are seeking help. But, um, you know, when, when you are in, in living in that community, sometimes you, you are not open to, you're not opening your door to get that help. And I'm sure there is help available, uh, you know, those who are listening, that they are doctors, they are uh, clinics uh, like ours. There are many clinics who are willing to help. If if this is an opportunity, I see if somebody wants to get on the, the treatment programs, recovery, people don't have to come in person. We are also maintaining that um, the physical social distance. All our clinics are open. The staff are there. The physicians are coming in, and if they're not coming in, they're all doing this through the phone to continue to support those who need help. And is that message getting out, do you think, to the people, uh, specifically to people, to let them know that, yes, there are still services available and it can be done with the rules of physical distancing? Absolutely. We have, um, our staff have been calling patients who are on the program because there's this fear that uh, if the clinic's not open, how am I going? To, how will I get my medication? So we have been doing that. We have been calling patients, letting them know, don't come, don't put yourself at risk. Uh, the physicians, if you need to talk to the physicians, we will make that happen. Your prescription will will be at the pharmacy, and we are really there. Uh, even the College of Pharmacy is supporting the pharmacies to also do deliveries to. If patients can't make it to the uh, the pharmacy because of this risk, so everybody is really open to the idea of supporting those who need help. The person has to show up or call, and um, you know we we it, 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 these are very very tough times for everyone. Right. Our staff, I know our clinics, we have five locations. The staff have been working super hard. 
to support uh, the patients. And and there are other clinics as well and doctors who are doing this. And, and all the healthcare providers, whether it's COVID-19 or addiction, we need to show up and support and we need the community, um, you know, to listen to the message, whatever right. that message is right now, is to practice that isolation, the All physical right. distance. All right. So, I'm sorry, Nirmala. We'll have to leave it there. We're right out of time. Uh, Nirmala Raniga, addiction specialist. So, let's shift gears right now, though, because we also want to talk about something that is happening in Surrey. And the Downtown Surrey Business Improvement Association has launched a meal program, and that's in collaboration with the Surrey Hospital. Foundation aimed at helping workers who are on the front lines of this. And joining me on the line is uh, Elizabeth Modal, the CEO of the Downtown Surrey Business Improvement Association, to talk a little bit more about this. Thank you so much uh, for joining us on such a busy day. You're most welcome. Happy to be here. Uh, So what exactly will this uh, entail as far as a meal program uh, for those working on the front lines? So it's a win-win. It's going to be a win for the workers at Surrey Memorial Hospital, and it's also a win for our local restaurants in within the Business Improvement Association district. So that's um, it's a, it's a, a program that we set up that the BIA will pay restaurants that have come on board uh, to deliver meals to those staff who've worked numerous shifts, overtime shifts, and are on the front line. Uh, with those people who are ill. And how will you go about doing this and administering this in keeping with the new rules we have about physical distancing and staying safe? So everything is done online with the ordering. and Those details we worked out with the Surrey Memorial Hospital Foundation through the hospital and uh, and their staff and, and what they're doing there. So for what we're doing is we're identifying the restaurants who are on board we're paying the restaurants from our association, and they will organize it with the hospital to do the deliveries, when, where, um, type of meals, etc. All right. And who exactly would then be eligible for uh, to, to take part in this? Well, that would be the frontline uh, responders within the hospital. So if that's what you're implying for the employees uh, right. who work within Surrey Memorial Hospital... So we're, we're looking at uh, those hundreds of employees, the doctors and nurses, office staff, cleaning crews, anyone who's been working the very long hours. Um, so that's for them to identify. And it sounds like a, what a great program because people are working double shifts and they're working such long hours. And this has to also be coming at a time when the members of the, of the Downtown Surrey Business Improvement Association are also feeling uh, the negative effects from this pandemic. There has been a huge impact on our members and the businesses in the area. So the team here at the Downtown Surrey BIA, my staff, came up with this idea after speaking and contacting with many of the businesses that they were open for online. So when the hospital did the reach out to us with uh, Jane Adams from the foundation, uh, we just felt that it was a very good uh, win-win for everybody within this very uh, extremely difficult time for everybody. Absolutely. And you might have touched on this, but where are you getting uh, the food then to put the meals together? Uh, those come from the local restaurants. Oh, very nice. So are they, and, and this would be restaurants, I suppose, that are, have either uh, gone down to only doing takeout or have closed altogether. That's correct. So a lot of the restaurants have just gone to takeout. So we provide them with the monies and then they uh, deliver to the hospital when, uh, when required. 
All right. And uh, anything else uh, that you want to mention about this? Uh, do you need, are, are the restaurants or, or the, the program, is it in need of donations or anything else that people need to know? Absolutely. So there is a foundation on the Surrey Memorial Hospital Foundation website. There is a donation page, so you're able to donate to support our frontline responders, as well as, um, you know, our restaurants and, and our businesses that are open in the area uh, for that takeout um, are, are available f- uh, to call into to, to make those donations to as well. All right. Well, it sounds like a great way to kind of shift gears and help those that have been working so hard during this and will continue working so hard for the weeks to come. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time today. Most welcome. But first, we're going to take a look at an industry we don't talk about all that often, the funeral industry. And Claire Allen, who is a CKNW contributor, spoke earlier today with Jason Everden, head of the BC Funeral Association. And that's an association that represents funeral funeral directors, embalmers, crematorium operators, and cemetery workers. He recently wrote a letter to the provincial government asking to be declared an essential service. Take a listen to this report. Jason, how has the COVID-19 pandemic impacted funeral providers? Well, we have two main issues at this point in the game here, and I don't mean to call it a game, but we have, um, we're like everyone else, so we have uh, funeral sector staffing shortages. So that means that um, we've got staff just like everyone else, and sometimes those staff get sick, and then they think, well, do I have COVID or do I not? And so they have to quarantine themselves. There's no tests available, as at least that we've been able to see. So um, with quarantining and then staff, you know, the regular phoning in sick. So we're, we're a little down on staff now. We're, we've always had a shortage of staff at, uh, in our profession. And now this has just kind of escalated that. So we've got the staff shorting issue, and then we've got the no personal protection uh, equipment issue. Um, PPE is uh, very hard to find these days. Gowns, um, hand sanitizer. I mean, I, I finally got some in, but they're really not giving it out very often. You know, they'll say, oh, here's three or here's four, you know, the main suppliers. And what about family members who were planning a memorial or funeral for their loved ones? How has this pandemic impacted those plans? Yeah, so that's created... Um, most families that we see are postponing the services right now. So there's, if you if you look at the obituaries, you know the online obituaries, you'll see postpone, postpone, postpone. So they go ahead with, um, um, you know, the disposition. So if it's cremation, they'll go ahead with the cremation. They can still have a viewing of of the deceased, you know, before that happens. Um, private family services are permitted. Um, we're actually still allowed up to fifty, but there's. Um, very few of our members that are kind of comfortable monitoring that because, you know, what if 52, 53 people show up and we don't want to be a, a source of an outbreak. Um, so I, I think most are postponing. The other option is having, like I said, the private family service and then they can webcast it. Um, and then we get into the technology side of things where, you know, there can be a, the immediate family presence and then everyone else can watch online. So going back to the concerns you've heard from your members what have they been telling you okay so our main concerns other than what we just discussed about the staff shortages and the personal protection equipment um, there's a very real possibility that there will be a shelter in place order put through in British Columbia and if that happens 
um, death care professionals need to be critical service or essential service. If we're not, can you imagine um, all of our staff would say, I'm not essential, I'm not allowed out of the house. Um, so we need to be, we need to keep our professionals on the front line, serving families and, um, you know, doing all that behind the scenes, no matter what. So we have done, uh, we've sent a letter to Adrian Dix, uh, Minister of Health, um, on March 23rd. We've got that letter off, and then we've also taken part in a joint letter with all the other countries, all of Canada's other general service associations, and sent that to a, at a federal level. So at this point, all we can do is sit back and hope that they they listen to us and, and make sure that, uh, you know, death care professionals, which is funeral homes, crematoriums, and cemeteries, as well as our suppliers, you know, to, to all those entities are related and essential infrastructure. Ontario and Quebec just got, they're, they're now listed as essential and critical providers. Um, so if, if BC follows suit, which I really hope we hear in the next few days, um, properly identifying death care professionals as critical service or essential service will allow us to remain in a position to aid in this crisis and provide them with the priority access to crucial supplies, such as the, the PPE that we discussed. So you just sent that letter to Health Minister Adrian Dix, and I'm assuming you probably haven't heard back yet. They're a little busy. <laughs> they have a lot of uh, a lot of industry and other professions that are you know trying to get the same thing. Um, but you know, uh, death care professionals, I, I can't see. You know, we're we're definitely front line. There's always going to be deaths happening. Um, you know, and I'm not talking about COVID-19 deaths. Those are going to be in the mix too, but just just our regular, you know, the deaths that we look after on a daily basis. If the government were to not deem funeral providers an essential service in the event of a shelter-in-place order, what would that look like? That's a great question. That would look like staff wouldn't be showing up at funeral homes because they're not supposed to be leaving their house. Um, that would mean that if a death occurred at a home, that a funeral provider would not be able to go to the home and transfer the deceased. Hospital deaths would not be picked up from the hospital. Um, you know, that sort of thing. So that, that's really a disaster in our minds. And, and in the general public, it should be too, and the government should know that. So that's uh, all we can hope is that they understand.